Well, good morning. So good to be with you today here in the auditorium or if you're watching church online this morning, we welcome you as well. Especially if you're a newcomer here today, thank you for joining us. My name's Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free, and if we haven't yet connected, love to connect with you after the service. Uh, we are in the fifth week of a five-week series, so last week today on a short message, message series titled Equip to Lead, and it's part of a broader, overarching, strategic plan that includes this initiative from church-dependent to equipped to lead. Now, we're not saying in that that we are church-dependent, but there's this natural thing in all of us that we get more and more dependent on the church if we're not careful. And really, the church's job, the leaders in the church, our job is to equip you to lead in your most important relationships and to lead in the ministries that God would give to you, whatever they might be. And so we've been talking specifically about how God would equip you to lead in your most important relationships over these past number of weeks and a number of tools that we would have for the jobs that are in front of us, for the relationships that are in front of us. Let me begin, though, this morning just by asking this question, maybe by show of hands. Have you ever had a project to do at your house or your place of business, and you realized you didn't have the right tools to get that project done? Okay, everyone, a few people laughing at that. Okay, we've all been there many times, such that you have to go back to Menards or about, go back to Builders or Ace or whatever your hardware store is and get the tools, perhaps again and again. I have a number of such stories that I could share with you this morning, but I do not feel like surrendering my man card right now, and so I'm going to share someone else's story. A number of years back, Susie and I traveled to her family's native country of India, and this was shortly after we got married, probably about 14 years ago now, and uh, we went to visit a number of aunts and uncles and grandparents down in South India, where they're from, uh, the state of of Kerala and Tamil Nadu, and then after visiting their family in South India, we traveled up north to go to a few sites that we really wanted to see. One of the places that we wanted to visit was Calcutta, and Calcutta is a, a really interesting city, a challenging city in so many ways, 17 million people, and there are some great sites, there's horrible smog as comes with a city of 17 million people without any environmental restrictions. And you're breathing it in, day in and day out. And so we wanted to go to this botanical gardens to get away from it. But to get to the botanical gardens, you had to take an auto rickshaw to get there over this famous Calcutta Bridge called the Howrah Bridge, which goes over the Howrah River. And you see a picture of it up on the screen. And we, we, we got locked in traffic, and an auto rickshaw is basically a glorified motorcycle with a cab in the back for two people to sit in and no seat belts. And... Hold on for dear life. And so we're going to this botanical gardens. We come up to this famous bridge and we get stopped, not by traffic at this moment, but by construction. And as we come up to the bridge, what we saw was dozens of lovely women with head-to-toe saris on, these beautiful, colorful saris, these dresses, and they were the construction workers on this bridge. And it was three lanes in each direction as they were seeking to repair the cracks in this bridge that went back and forth over the river. And they had two tools each. One of those five-gallon plastic buckets that you would get at your home improvement store. 
and a wooden ladle. And they were pulling tar out of the five-gallon buckets with the wooden ladle and pouring it on these cracks, which struck me in that moment. Big job, wrong tools. Not even close to, right, to the right tools. And, and I thought of that this past week as I was thinking about this message today. Because it strikes me that we have been given the greatest of jobs, the greatest of callings from our Lord. And oftentimes we've never been given the tools to succeed in it. I'm talking about marriage. We've been called, many of us, into a marriage relationship. Many others of us in this room would like to be married someday, if the Lord would so will. And oftentimes, if we are honest, we would have to say we've never really been given tools to succeed in this incredibly challenging and incredibly difficult calling called marriage. And so what I'd like to do here, though, this morning is invite my wonderful wife, Susie, up on stage with me at this time. And she's going to help me out, though, this morning because I figured for you just to hear from a man on marriage wouldn't quite do it for the ladies. Can I get an amen, ladies? All right, so Susie's going to join me on stage, though, this morning, and we're going to uh, share together a number of tools from a wonderful passage, Ephesians chapter 5, and I'd invite you to turn there with us right now. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, it's one of the keynote passages on marriages, though, that we are, on marriage that we are given in the scriptures. We're going to read it together in just a moment, but before we read it, let me just say this. Susie and I have been married for 14 years. And eight or nine of them have been pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Which is mostly my fault. Like, it has not been a bed of roses for us, honey, has it? (laughs) Our first couple years of marriage was like walking on eggshells. We just didn't understand each other. We came from such different backgrounds, which we'll talk about a little bit more in just a few moments. We did not understand each other, and it was very difficult. And still today, as we give this message, I want you to hear this. There are no experts in this room. We're in process. We have not arrived, not even close. We're in process, just like you are. And anyone who says that they've arrived in this calling is either lying or out of their mind. Because this is one that we have to go back and get new tools and get refreshers on again and again and again. Shall we read now from Ephesians 5? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body, his father and mother, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thank you. You know, from this passage, what we would like to do here this morning is humbly offer four tools for anyone who is married today, for anyone who hopes one day to be married, anyone who is asking the question, perhaps entering into relationships for the first time, what is it that I should be looking for in a future spouse? Four tools and four very humbling questions which continue to challenge us today. And uh, hopefully from that we can grow in God's design for marriage. The, the, the first tool is this. It goes like this. Embrace God's design for marriage. We want to embrace God's design for our marriage. And we see that in this beautiful statement that we have here in verse 31. That uh, for this reason it says, a, a, a man will leave his father and mother and he will cleave to his wife. He'll be united to his wife. By implication, a woman will leave her father and mother, and she will cleave to her husband. She'll be united to her husband, and together the two will become one flesh. The, the question this begs here, the question it raises for all of us here is, will I follow God's blueprint that he has given to us for marriage? I got to admit, the first several years though that we were married, Suze, it was really hard for me to follow God's design for marriage because what I wanted was what I wanted. And even still today, I got to tell you, 14 years in, there are times that I'm not really sure I want to completely follow God's design because I still want what I want. Does anyone hear me this morning? I mean, there's just something that we all just want what we want. And yet God's design, God's blueprint for marriage is you leave all others and cleave to one another, be united to one another, come out of the banner of others and be united to one another. And then at that point, from that point forward, you become one flesh. And what God has brought together, let no one separate. If you've ever been to a wedding ceremony, you've probably seen a special time in that ceremony when the husband and wife kind of break off, the, the husband and wife-to-be, the bride and the groom, break off from the rest of the wedding party and they go do something symbolic that speaks to this marriage blueprint. And there's a number of different symbols though, that we use. Let's pull these out of the barn door if you don't mind helping me, Susie. There's a number of these different symbols though, that we use uh, classically, people used to do kind of the communion elements, and we have communion elements back here, all for this purpose of saying we are unified before the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nowadays, you might go to a wedding and see something like this, the unity sand. You ever seen that? And this is this idea that uh, there's sand from two different people two different areas of their lives, two different homes, two different families of origin, and they come together and you can't ever separate them. Or perhaps you've seen a unity candle, and it's the same kind of thing, these two candles coming together to make one much brighter flame as they unite with one another. And then finally, 
many of you have probably seen this cord of three strands, this knot, which conveys this idea that the husband is one cord, and the wife is another cord, and then there's a third cord in the center, which is God himself that unites us together in marriage, and it's the cord of three strands that is not quickly broken. Each of these symbols communicates that same idea that I came from someone else, but I'm leaving that banner of protection and I'm coming under your banner and we're starting something new, something fresh with each other from this day forward. I, I call it um, the marriage blueprint for this reason. Uh, the Bible gives this statement four different times that we would leave all others, that we would cleave to one another, and then we would become one flesh. At the very onset of creation, with the very first couple, it's given. Jesus states it two different times. And then the Apostle Paul states it here. I don't know about you, if there's ever a verse that's stated four times the exact same way in scriptures, I better follow it. And what it's saying here is that on the wedding day, but then also again, year after year, we commit to these, that we would be united financially, that we would be united physically, that we would be united emotionally, that we would be united spiritually. And that's so critical to be able to say that again and again, because the truth is, and we all know this, there's always someone or something Always some person or some hobby or some financial issue that threatens to divide that new marriage union. Isn't that the case? There's always something that will threaten to divide. And so we commit from the very beginning, I am going to say yes to God's design even when it's so difficult for us. This February 8th and 9th, I'd like you to know that we are going to host a marriage conference here, a live marriage conference here just titled, I Choose Us. It's, it's that decision. I choose us, no matter how difficult it is, I'm going to choose you. Really, this first tool and this first question is, is based on how we would answer this question. Um, what has authority in your marriage? What's going to have authority in your marriage? And ultimately, I think all of us will come to a point where we're either going to have to answer does God have authority in my marriage or do my own feelings have authority in my marriage? And culture will tell us again and again to follow our feelings, that feelings are king, but I am here to tell you that your feelings are the most fickle thing around. They will change from day to day and from year to year. The question is, does God have authority in your marriage? And will you follow his design even when it gets very difficult? Susie, when we first started out, that's about all we had. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really struggled with the second tool that you're going to speak to now. But what we did have was this commitment that we will work it out no matter how difficult it gets. We commit to each other and we commit to God's design. What's the second tool that we had to learn? The next tool is called mutual submission, and it's straight out of Ephesians 5.21, which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that verse serves as kind of the headline for the rest of the passage. It's kind of like when I just read an article out of the Carney Hub that said, 
um, downtown Holdridge to be revitalized, and then the rest of the article tells you what it's about. And that's kind of what this verse serves as. And this verse then begs the question and raises the question, am I willing to be wrong and admit it? Am I willing to be wrong and actually admit it? When a husband and wife are willing to come face to face with our own selfishness as people and really think about ourselves as level at the cross, and when we stop to really listen and hear the other person's heart, then beauty can emerge from the ashes. Adrian and I have made a lot of mistakes in our marriage. And there is pride, which leads to defensiveness and the temptation to list all the other person's wrongs and all the things that I do oh so right. There are Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> there are distinct differences from our families of origin. You came from a family that's very independent and all voices were heard and opinions allowed. And I came from a home where it was very interdependent and listening to the family patriarch to determine our decisions and to think how we think about the world. And then our love languages are as different as night and day. And sometimes we just feel like, man, can we at least agree on something once in a while? <laughs> Why is this so hard? There was one point in our marriage that we decided it was really hard and we needed some help. So we decided to go to marriage counseling. And um, marriage counseling was hard. <laughs> we were given lots of assignments. We had to read books and articles. And, but what we learned from those is that we each had some unrelenting standards and expectations. Um, and one of the key things that was uh, really surprising to us was that we were not enemies. <laughs> that we were actually made different and put together to complement each other. Pretty novel idea yeah. that we would complement each That's other. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so we weren't supposed to plow over each other and um, use the other person as a doormat, but we were actually supposed to help each other become more vibrant and stronger. Strong marriages are made of two people who fight for each other, not against each other. In society, we often are taught to celebrate coming out on top to value fighting it out to the very end until um, you have the last word and that you become the champion. But the problem with the mentality of a win-loss mentality for marriage is that if there is a winner, then there's a loser. And you're actually on the same side. So when, we're, when someone is looking for a spouse, you wanna look for these things. Does she always need to be right? And is he the type of person who can actually listen to others' opinions and admit when he's missed the mark? Does she dig her heels in? And is he the kind of person who's willing to apologize and forgive because he reveres Christ who has forgiven him? You know, that decision that we will mutually submit to one another, that we will all acknowledge that we are going to be wrong on a regular basis, and that's normal. It's normal to be wrong. And then it's normal to admit it. And then it's normal to forgive. That's the lubrication for marriage, that we would 
consistently submit to each other in that way, acknowledging that I might miss the mark. It follows this idea of God's design and mutual submission. And then the, the, the next tool that you want to hold on to, and particularly for the men in the room, comes here in verse 25, and it's, it's sacrificial love. That men are called here to sacrificial love. I tell you what, the first number of times that I read this passage, probably 19, 20 years ago, when I first became a Christian, I was kind of put off by verse 22, which it says, wives, submit to your husbands. I just wasn't raised that way in my family of origin, and that kind of felt like a relic of the past and perhaps too big of an expectation for wives to do toward their husbands, and I felt like this passage was expecting too much of the women and really not expecting much of the men. I was so wrong. After the past 15 years of really studying this passage, I am firmly convinced that the greatest onus of responsibility in this passage is given to husbands who are told to sacrificially love in the way they lead as servants. Listen to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way that Christ loved the church, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. What a challenge. I think the question that comes out of this challenge for us is, I am, am I looking out for my interests or her interests? Am I looking out for my interests first, for my preferences first, for my needs first, or am I looking out for her interests before my own interests? Many people look at this passage and they say, okay, if Jesus died for the church, then maybe this means for me as a husband, one day I will have to die for my wife if she's in danger. And I am certain, as I'm looking out in the room here today, there are many men who would no doubt die for their wives if their wives were in danger. I don't doubt that at all. But the simple truth is, for 99% of us, we will never have to do that. And thanks be to God that we won't. So the question is, how do we apply this passage as part of our lifestyle when we, in most likelihood, will not have to actually die for our spouse. The questions are more like this. Am I willing to give up my softball game when my wife needs me to be at home to help with the kids? To, to give up some of my interests for her needs? Am I willing to do whatever I can to help her blossom as the beautiful woman of God that he has made her to be? to love her in a sacrificial way, not to treat the leadership that God has given me as a privilege, but instead to treat the leadership that God has given us men as a responsibility. And it's a responsibility never to be abused. It's amazing to me how many men across the centuries have abused this passage and misused this passage. It is never saying that we are to stomp over our wives. It's saying that we are to sacrifice for them, that we are to be the kind of servant leaders who give up some of what we would wish so that she can blossom into all God wants her to be. 
to be the kind of leaders who enter into conflict, which last time I checked is inevitable in a marriage, that we enter into conflict and we just commit ourselves, this is a time for me to reinforce the C word rather than the D word. To reinforce commitment and never allow the word or the thought of divorce even to be brought up. We commit ourselves to each other and I sacrifice some of what I want for you. You know, um, it, it looks like this. I think if you were to take the passage as a whole and you were to boil it down in its simplest way in terms of the high expectation from God for the husband and the high expectation from God for the wife, it looks like this. The husband is sacrificing for her the way I just described. And then from time to time, they will come to a very difficult decision that needs to be made together. And as they're making a difficult decision, the first thing they do is they fall on their knees in prayer. And they trust in God to answer their prayers in communion as they're praying together over the course of any amount of time. I believe God will oftentimes speak to us in communion if we really commit to praying together. And then if necessary, if we still don't have a joint answer, we go and consult with other wise counsel and see what they think. And then eventually, sometimes you get to a point where you have to make a decision and you still are locking horns about that decision, then what do you do? I think what the passage is saying there is that if the man is sacrificing his interests for hers, then she would delight to say, oh, I trust you. I trust you enough that I will go with you on this decision, even if I don't completely agree, and even if I don't completely understand, because here we are and the decision still has to be made. I think that's what this passage is talking about. <laughs> Has there ever been a time, Suze, that we've had to apply this passage in our marriage? Yeah, I can think of, well, I can think of several times where we've disagreed. <laughs> <laughs> and we've, I think we've talked through those, prayed through those, and come to a middle ground. But I can think of two um, situations on big decisions. Um, one was regarding a, a job that I was going to take. Another one was the decision to move here to Kearney. And um, I remember distinctly, we, um, you came home from work that day, and we, it was a nice day. We decided to go on a walk with the boys to the park and let them play. And on the walk, you said, I got a phone call today, and I'm scared to tell you about it. And you were scared to tell me about it because at that time in, in my life, I was going through a season of um, generalized anxiety. And every little decision, every little change um, brought on anxiety and was really hard for me, whether it was small or big. And this was going to be a big decision. Um, but you continued to share because you needed to, and you said, I got a phone call from Pastor John Strubhar at Carney E. Free, and he asked me whether I would be willing to apply for the lead pastor position. And you went on to say, but if you don't want me to pursue this, I will close the door now. Um, you went on to share some of the reasons why you thought it might be good for our family, and you didn't expect an answer for me right then, and I was pretty quiet. Um, but I told you I would pray about it, and over the next couple days, I felt like if this is something that you want to pursue, 
um, I wanted to be behind you and I could trust you um, because you had considered me and our family first and I was able to respect that and follow your lead and after applying we would kind of make the decision together. Um, and so that was a really big one um, that I can think of and that led me to just respect you more. And it actually leads to our fourth tool, which is respect. And um, in Ephesians 5.33, it says, Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Um, and the question that brings up is then, am I building him up? Am I respecting him and building him up? If you look at any sitcom today, or most sitcoms today on TV, you will see that the man is made out to be the buffoon. And you will see that um, in, in the relationship, the man is made out to be the incompetent, dumb partner in the household. And that's where the laughs come from, is laughing at the man's stupidity. Um, and I can't tell you the number of times that women, when I talk to them, getting to know them, and I ask, how many children do you have? And they'll say, oh, I have three. Well, if you include my husband, four. And I just think in my mind, why would you include your husband? He's not your child. Do you treat him like your child? Um, it, it just leaves a bad taste, and it, it really dishonors the spouse, even if it was just in a joking way. Or there's been times, for example, when I've gone on women's retreat, which, by the way, women sign up for. It's November 9th and 10th. Um, but when people ask, well, how, how is Adrian going to survive without you? How, has he, how did he survive without you? And I'll say, quite well, because he's, he's with the boys all the time. He's not their babysitter. He's an engaged father. The boys love their time with daddy. And um, quite honestly, the boys would rather have daddy's grilling than mommy's burnt food. So that works out on all, on all sides. They miss their mama play. <laughs> um, but that said, um, if we as wives make our husbands feel like they can't do anything right, eventually they're just going to give up trying. We respect him and build him up. Ladies, please believe in him and tell him he can be the leader that God has called him to be. And you actually show your faith in God by saying, I trust God's design for marriage, and I will follow my husband and respect him. Susie's done such an amazing job with that across our marriage, and she's built me up on so many different occasions when I've been vulnerable. And a secret is... We are insecure, like all of us. All of us are insecure. And from time to time, we always need someone else to build us up in the midst of our insecurity. I think of one time, about a year and a half ago, Suze, when I was going through a reordination process here with our denomination. I was ordained about 12 years ago for gospel ministry, but I went through a reordination process about a year and a half ago and went through a period of writing and reviewing and studying, all leading up to about a five-hour defense that I would make before an ordination council of denominational leaders and pastors. 
and uh, to stand there answering questions about my Christian beliefs for five hours, I was insecure. I felt nervous. And so in the days to come, Susie helped me by quizzing me over a variety of different questions. And then I'll never forget, on the day of that ordination, as I got into the car to drive to Gothenburg, I looked down at the cup holder, and in my car, in the cup holder, was a little bucket. And in that bucket was a number of energy bars and energy drinks and uh, gum and different goodies. And then behind all of that was a little note that said, Adrian, you have worked so hard at this, and I am sure you'll do well. Uh, whatever happens, know that I am in your corner. And whatever happens, know that you are a child of God, that is your identity, and this does not change that. And then at the bottom of the note, it was dot, 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 with an arrow going over to the other side. So I flipped over the note to the other side, and it says, and besides, you got this. And I, I just got to tell you, at that moment, Susie made me feel about nine feet tall. I, I just felt like, boy, I, I could run through a wall right now because my wife is behind me. She is building me up when I feel weak and vulnerable. And we all need that from time to time from each other. And you've done that in such a beautiful way for me over the years. It's so powerful when a wife chooses not to go the way of culture and putting husband down, but building him up in the midst of his insecurities. Let me wrap this up this morning with one final thought. Uh, there's a wonderful book. We have a number of resources on the back of your outline, though, this morning. But this book, The Mean of Marriage by Timothy Keller, is an excellent book. And uh, Keller writes this in The Mean of Marriage. He says, if each spouse says to the other, I will treat my selfishness, as the main potential problem in this marriage, then you have the potential for a great marriage. Then you have the prospect for great things when we treat our own selfishness as the main problem in our marriage. The most natural thing, of course, is to say, it's her fault, it's his fault. He's the problem in our relationship. But what Ephesians 5 is about is saying we mutually submit ourselves to Christ who is our king. And we will follow his design for our marriage. And I will look out for her interests over my own. And she will respect me even when sometimes she doesn't like me. And together... If we are acknowledging that there is a beast inside of us that says, I'm looking out for me, myself, and I, and that's a problem, then we can move beyond that and we can have the prospect of a great marriage. All of these tools are unique to the scriptures. I'm telling you, you, you look at culture at large and the idea of sacrificing some of what you want for someone else, is that found anywhere in your sitcoms? Uh, how about the idea of um, respecting him when he goofs up? Is that found in contemporary media? Uh, how about the idea of obeying God's authority even when it doesn't feel right to you? That's certainly not found in our culture. But my friends, if we embrace these tools as they are taught in the Bible, 
They produce greater joy and greater depth and greater sustainability than anything we will get from this world. We have to work them, and then they work. Would you pray with us? Gracious Father in heaven, I, I thank you that you don't leave us alone in this wonderful calling called marriage. Thank you, Lord, that you have given your Son who sacrificed himself for us to bring us to God. And Jesus said things like, I submit myself to the Father and I only say the things and do the things that the Father gives me to do. And Jesus was Lord over the heavens and the earth, and he submitted to the Father. And so, Father, would you give us courage in our marriage to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? I pray for ladies in this room who just feel like, right now, I can't respect my husband. I ask God that you would speak, that you would encourage them to find something that they can respect to build him up in love. And perhaps they will find this reciprocity where he all of a sudden desires to love her all the more. And I pray for men in the room who have gotten out of the habit of sacrificing some of their interests for their wives. God, that you would give them courage to lay down what they want because they uphold what you want. They would treasure their bride. They would want her to be a radiant bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Father, in all of this, we confess we are deeply in need of your help. In all of this, we have failed. And so we ask for your forgiveness. I pray now for those in the church who are thinking about being married someday. Maybe they're thinking of it right now. Maybe they have someone that they're dating right now. Maybe, maybe they're hoping even today. Maybe you're in a spot today that, that you hope to be married again. If the Lord would so will. And give you that opportunity to be married again. And I, I pray for you that you would work these tools. That you would ask these challenging questions. As you process through whether he is a good fit whether she is a good fit, and whether together you can live up to God's great design. And Father, now as we come to the communion table, we admit together that each of us has failed, and each of us is in need of your grace. Here as we talk about marriage, but really in all of life, we are in need of your grace. And we thank you that as we take this bread which represents your body and this cup which represents your blood, you have indeed given us your grace, given us your mercy, and for that we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name.